Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. Welcome to this episode of The American Idea. So glad you're joining us today. We have a very special uh, guest and special topic today. Uh, very interesting. We're going to be talking about American prophets and the place of religion, in particular prophetic religion, in American history and life. And joining me today to do that is Daniel Galata. Daniel is at Stanford University pursuing his PhD in religious studies and he's specializing in American religious history. And his work is on the role that religion played in the rise of Andrew Jackson and the birth of the Dem Democratic Party. I think that's not a subject that too many people think about or understand the importance of. So interested to talk about that. Daniel is a graduate of Yale University's Divinity School. He also holds a Master of Theological Studies specializing in Biblical Studies from the Australian Catholic University and a bachelor's degree in theology with honors from the University of Newcastle. So we've got on our hands a, a real scholar <laughs> <laughs> of religion and religious history. In addition to his scholarly work, and perhaps as an outgrowth of that, he is a frequent contributor to the more popular press. Some of you may have read him in The Bulwark, and his writings have also appeared in The Washington Post, The Hill, National Review, and The New Criterion. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Um, just to start us off with a, a question, sort of a broad overview, 30,000 feet question. What can the, what are these American prophets, these American-made prophets, show us about the role of religion in early U.S. history? Well, it's one of those interesting things when we think of the office, the vocation, the calling of this character we call the prophet. Typically, prophets arise out of places of crisis. They're usually responding, being called hmm. to something. Maybe it's eco um, ecological, economic, political, mounting pressure from foreign nations, um, you know, stresses in the economy, all sorts of things. And usually these prophets, when they arise, they feel called by God, gods, um, depending what religious tradition you're in, to either lead the people out of impending disaster, mm. lead the people into a more idyllic way of life. If the people have gone astray with their religious practice and belief, lead them back. So usually these lead, it's kind of in the name. They are they are leading um, as the voice of God, their, their representation. In the American context, obviously then we have an American flavor in terms of what they're talking about. Right. We have American stories, where they're born, what their influences are, um, what their ancestry is, particularly with the American Revolution, plays a big role in some of these guys' uh, ancestry. And beyond that as well, American problems, um, which we can get into with some of these particular figures. A lot of these guys are um, responding to um, American-style um, issues. Interesting. All right. So let's set a little of the historical background and context. For yes. This. Um, the Second Great Awakening. Remind us of the significance of that fact. Again, I think that when we study American history, we often study it um, politically, mm -hmm. perhaps socially, but neglect the importance of religion both on social and political history. 
Talk to us about the importance of the Second Great Awakening in setting the stage for American prophets. You were just playing my show tunes because I'm that <laughs> I am that guy in seminars and conferences saying, "But what about religion?" Yeah. Um, so I, you you are you're playing me in. No, it is interesting when we think about the Second Great Awakening. Um, awakenings that usually describe an uptick, a fervor in religious sediment, um, devotion. Um, in uh, a population. So we have multiple awakenings. The Second Great Awakening usually begins uh, with the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801. It's this, uh, it lasts all week, and there's this outpouring of religious excitement and fervor, hmm. and it seems to catch on like wildfire, and we start to see on the frontier, Bible societies build up, circuit riders start to revive the population. Um, in the urban centers of New York, we see um, street preachers come to town and really whip up the whip up the population. Mm -hmm. um, even in the, your more like farmland communities, we're seeing more religious resurgence. The reason why this is interesting is most scholars argue that religious attendance following the American Revolution have been on the wane. They might be nominally Christian, what we would call today culturally Christian, perhaps. Right, all right. But they're not really zealous for the faith. Um, besides that, Episcopalians, um, Anglicans at this time period, still for many of the col former colonies hold a stranglehold, and it's either them or the Calvinists, the Presbyterian Congregationalists. Right. They also hold a, strangle, a stranglehold on a lot of the, the ways uh, religion is allowed to be experienced. In the Second Great Awakening, it's when we start to see the rise of religious denominations we're very familiar with today, Baptists and Methodists. So ah. today, you drive down the street and you might see you know, a Baptist or a Methodist church for, you know, one every couple of miles. Right. Back in this day, these guys are the underdogs. This is, it's hmm. in this story that these guys take over in many parts, particularly in what we know as the Bible Belt. So we have with the Second Great Awakening a kind of birth of what we would now think of as evangelical, Protestant evangelical Christian denominations and sort of uh, spirituality. Yeah, it's one of the things that's interesting. The role of evangelicalism on the rise plays well with the decline of Calvinism. So for listeners who don't know what Calvinism is, you know, crash, crash dirty course. Um, so much of the anxiety that comes from Calvinism is that God has a plan for everyone and is preordained. Uh, he knows if you're going to heaven or hell and there is nothing you can do on earth to, to change that. And if you look at uh, if you look at the the way religiosity is expressed in the 18th century, there's a bit of a bit of depression about this, as you can imagine. It's like, well, if I don't have fate over my destiny, well, what the heck is the point? Jonathan Edwin's cousin, for example, commits suicide over this very fact because mm. he want like if I'm going to have it on hell, I want to find out sooner rather than later. In the Second Great Awakening, we're seeing this way of theological understanding be chipped away, and we start to see the language of, if you choose Christ, if you open I your heart that. and let Jesus in. Rhetoric that many people might be familiar with, figures like Billy Graham, this is when that rhetoric finds its birthplace. The idea that you can choose what denomination. And part of it plays in the freedom of the American Revolution. If if I'm free to, uh, you know, if I'm free to be an American citizen and I have, you know, separation of church and state, man, th these Methodists, I like what they're saying. I yeah. like what they're doing. Right. Maybe they're the ones for me. So we see this more um, open playing field, what Madison uh, would call the, what Madison describes as the marketplace of religion. 
It's in this time period that we see you guys have to compete. All right. So the decline from the revolutionary period onward of the Anglican, the more established Anglican yes. and sort of Presbyterian denominations, the rise of evangelical denominations, as you say, like Baptists, um, sets the stage for, you know, a, a more... Um, and I mean this in the technical sense of enthusiastic religion, yes. right? Um, a more enthusiastic religion. And then in the 19th century, we start to see American prophets. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important of those, and someone I know that you've thought a, 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 a bit about and worked on, is, of course, Joseph Smith, the founder of what is called Mormonism. Tell us about the, the, the rise of Joseph Smith as a prophet and his significance in American religious history. No, the word you use is perfect, enthusiasm. The other E word I would use is experimentation. This period is defined by a heck of a lot of religious experimentation, and mm. Joseph Smith is characteristic of it. Um, he's born in Vermont in 1805, um, ancestors to the revolution. Um, his parents are not very good with money. They move around quite a bit um, because uh, his dad is really bad with economic investments. Mm. And he's kind of the perfect example of what many Americans are going through this time period. He is looking at all this religious excitement and enthusiasm going around him, but he doesn't know what to do about it. His father isn't really interested in religion. His mother has Methodist leanings, but just isn't willing to commit because she's always she always has some kind of hang-up about one church or another being corrupted by, by sin or Satan in some way. So he goes into a sacred grove in, in, when he's a teenager, and he actually prays, Lord, which church should I join? Hmm. So he's, he's like a great example of what many Americans are going through. And it's from this experience that, uh, according to him, um, God and Jesus Christ, as two separate beings, as he will later tell us, um, appear to him and tell him he should not join any church, but rather he must establish and restore God's church. And the key word there is restore. Many of the churches, including Mormonism, are really excited about the idea of restoration. Kind of coming out of the uh, Protestant Reformation. All right. We got we to trim away all this window dressing and get back to the primitive, authentic, OG church. Smith isn't just doing that through the scriptures. He's doing that via revelation. God is telling him, mono e mono, I want. I am calling you, Joseph, to be my prophet, to get to get to work and restore my church. Well, now that's interesting to me because when I think of prophets, I think about people who bring a new revolution, uh, revelation to start a new church. And your argument is that Joseph Smith, in some respects, seeing himself in the tradition of of the Protestant Reformation, sees himself as as you say restoring. The, the church. That's well. That's the language he uses. Uh, he uses the language of revelation. So it's one of those interesting things. He receives revelation, which denotes an unveiling. New information is being disclosed to him from God. But so much, if you actually look at the contents of these revelations, they disclose ancient wisdom. So, for example, the, one of the most famous things about Mormonism is its scripture, the Book of Mormon, yeah. which is, and he claims, an ancient text written by Israelites in America that was hidden. So right there, you get the old and the new in his um, discernment. You have this new text for us today, 
but at the time, it's an ancient text written in the Old Testament style, witnessing to, um, as it, the subtitle literally says, another testimony of Jesus Christ, another testament of Jesus Christ. Mm. So it's an, he claims it's ancient but it's for a new world. It's this wonderful interplay, and Mormonism is full of this. For example, um, uh, the Abrahamic and uh, Melchizedek priesthood, it it had been lost, and uh, John the Baptist and uh, the apostles appear before Joseph and give him the keys of the priesthood. So once again, it is this ancient idea being restored to him. These ancient powers are are given to him as the prophet, but having said that, though, there are new problems, and he gets to, because of his prophetic ability, he claims he has the ability to ask God about this. For example, alcohol. Eventually, um, he will he will literally ask God what to do about alcohol, mm. and God will tell him to avoid it. So you get the best of both worlds with Joseph Smith. So it's very interesting. You have this kind of restoration, as you say, and re- revelation to restore, but of the ancient, but it's on a new continent, Mm -hmm. in a new world. It's American. What, in your view, is particularly American about Joseph Smith and his prophecies? that's, That's one of the most fascinating things about it, partly because there is this American identity with the Book of Mormon, because there, it's not just an old faith coming to a new world, rather the new world was already in God's plan of salvation with this extra story about the ancient Israelites. Hmm. Jesus Christ himself, according to Joseph Smith, has been to the Americas and preached to the native, uh, the indigenous inhabitants. So right there, they, like you don't see anything quite like this. The closest thing I think you come to it is John Wesley plays with the idea that Jesus' second coming might occur in America, giving it a kind of an American flair. Uh-huh. But Smith goes well beyond that, saying, no, Jesus has already been here. Let me tell you about it. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, though, there is... So, behind the scripture, though, there is a kind of American political order to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Community of Christ, as they're called in the early days. Joseph is the president of his church. They have to vote mm. on issues as a body. There are elders who make a and a council that make decisions. So even though there's this interesting, um, there's an interesting democratic element to Mormonism, but how does democracy work with a prophet as well? It's a fascinating uh, typewrote that often... Sometimes people get quite crabby at Joseph about this interplay. People leave and go. Um, And when Joseph is eventually um, assassinated in 1844 by an angry mob, in his legacy, Brigham Young and his descendants also have to figure out what does it mean to be a part, what does it mean to be a prophet um, in an American democracy? Yeah, what does that, that's such an interesting idea of this tension. You know, it reminds me of sort of Moses' travails with the Israelites, right? Oh, yeah. Prophets, is not on, it's an old story. Prophets not uh, being so well-received and, and a lot of grumbling. Tell, tell us then about um, as Mormonism moves west, I th- at least we're told largely as a result of persecutions in the east, moving west to find a place bring, with Brigham Young and others. Um, where... Tell, tell us about the place that they begin to occupy in American democracy, in the American Republic, because as you know, there's a lot of people in the 19th century who think that Mormonism cannot coexist with American democracy. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, 
and you it's very similar to the rhetoric against catholics it's somewhat similar to the um in some corners of the republic uh, suspicion of jews as well uh, more catholics though is the idea that like, can this person belonging to this particular religious faith because it has some kind of external authority whether that be a prophet or a pope can they be trusted to be good american hmm. citizens there's actually a very famous this is in the um late 19th, early 20th century, when we're starting to struggle for Utah statehood, there's a very famous image of a turtle, which has um, the word Roman Catholicism on it, um, attacking the White House. And on the other side, on the other side attacking the White House is a an octopus, which has the word Mormonism on it. Really? And it's basically, you can see like the twin, that Mormons and Catholics are being yeah. thrown into the same lump as one another. Um, Mormon, Mormonism is usually attacked as an octopus. Fun fact: it's to do with polygamy. The, tentac uh, yeah, the tentacles, like that. Mm -hmm. It's usually like a witty way to do that. Um, Catholics are attacked um, usually as reptiles to show that they're like an ancient, out of date, um, decrepit, superstitious faith. That's uh, that's where you usually get crocodiles as well with the bishop hats. Uh, uh. Uh, you know, Google stuff. Google this stuff, guys. Like, <laughs> I, I swear, I'm not making it up. Um, but in terms of the the place they, Brigham Young, after seceding Smith, his real struggle is he's trying to get away from the United States. In his mind, the United States has failed them. Um, with Smith being with Smith um, being assassinated. Um, Prior to this, in the Missouri conflict, where um, a very infamous execution order is laid out by Governor Boggs, where he says that he gives um, the residents of Missouri permission to kill any Mormon on sight. Wow. Yeah. So, obviously, by this stage, they're coming to the conclusion, we got to get the heck out of here. We're not welcome here. The problem is they go to Utah, what they call Deseret, only to find themselves back in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, they have to walk this tightrope. Um, and this becomes really, really tricky uh, when it comes to polygamy. Obviously, um, anyone who's familiar with the founding of the Republican Party at some of the early Republican meetings, they mention the twin relics of barbarism of our age. Slavery being the first one, the second one, polygamy is the second relic. So whenever there's a Republican president or Republican um, uh, senators, Mormons usually have to sweat a little bit um, because they know they know the Republicans aren't their friends. <laughs> so one last question about this then, this interesting, this sort of new prophetic religion. Um, nowadays, I think if our listeners thought of Mormons and of Utah, they would think of them as largely Republicans. Yes, yes. So how does the Mormon church end up assimilating itself to democracy such that's very significant public figures uh, Mitt Romney would be the most obvious one, um, runs as the nominee of the Republican Party. Well, it's, once again, to use the Catholic example, how do Catholics go from being tarred and feathered to the colonial period to now we've had John F. Kennedy and Joe Biden as Catholic presidents? It's a long story. It's a difficult story. There's a lot of bloodshed and debates and heartache. Mormonism's not so different. Part of the Mormon story is they have to get rid of polygamy at some point, and eventually... Um, the the presidency that um, they once again in the mode of prophet they seek the counsel of God about what to do because you are, you have to understand they see in this restoration movement they see polygamy as an element of the ancient faith being restored right where it's like oh well, Abraham kept Abraham practiced polygamy mm -hmm. does that mean polygamy will be restored 
And you actually see this in the um, uh, Prince Philip in the Reformation in Germany. He actually asked Martin Luther a very similar question. Hmm. So these questions don't fall, you know, once you start taking sola scriptura and restoration ideas seriously, you know, you'll be surprised how many people in all sorts of elements across the world, across different time periods, they get to the conclusion, maybe we should practice polygamy. That aside, part of the Mormon assimilation story, once they of polygamy, there's a fascinating turn where back in the day, the idea was as the people of God, as the Latter-day Saints, we have to build Zion and go to Zion's place. We build it, hmm. they will come. The presidency starts to change about this. No, we have to go evangelize. We have to build little Zions, if you will, I out see. in the world. Part of this is in the academy as well, where it's like we can't just produce people who go to Brigham Young University. We have to prove that we're serious, we're scholarly, we're smart. My good friend Richard Bushman, who's the world's leading expert on Joseph Smith, he's a graduate of Harvard University. He was a part of that effort in many ways mm. to get Latter-day Saints into the academy to prove that they knew what they were talking about. Um, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI as well, proving their loyalty. Uh, Mormons fighting in World War II as well and onwards. So much like many other faiths, um, whether it be Muslim, Hindu, Catholic, they prove their loyalty to the nation by serving the nation, by moving into neighborhoods with their Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant, you know, mostly Protestant neighbors and prove that there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So another prophet that I know you've thought about and worked on is someone that perhaps our listeners have not heard as much of, um, Robert Matthews, the prophet Matthias. Yes. Tell us about him and his significance in your mind for this idea of American prophets? Matthias is really interesting. Uh, he's born in uh, 1788 in uh, Washington County, New York. He's raised a Presbyterian. Um, and he, much like Joseph Smith, again, you can compare him. He is the victim of economic displacement. Um, his parents uh, die at a, quite a young age. So him and his brothers have to find manual labor work. So there are these economic pressures mounting upon him. Eventually, he starts to get involved in these revivals that are going on around him, and you see him flirting with uh, Methodism, but eventually he starts to hybridize his Methodism with a kind of interesting reading or understanding of uh, Judaism. And it's eventually he starts to claim that he is the Apostle Matthias reincarnated, basically. Hmm. That he is, um, he is going to be the vessel for God the Father to bring about the second coming. He establishes um, a kingdom in upstate New York, literally called the kingdom, and they start to live a kind of aesthetic, radical, um, a kind of radical monasticism as well, hmm. waiting for the end of the world to happen. One of his congregation members went by a different name then, but we would know her today as Sonja Truth. Really? She is a part of his congregation. Sonja Truth. Yes. Okay, fascinating. In her autobiography, she has a whole chapter called the Matthias delusion. So huh. she, she regrets her time uh -huh. up with Matthias, but she's there. It's, it's a fascinating story. And so, so some of the tenets of, of the kingdom are what? Well, this is the tricky thing. As a scholar of religion, I can tell you this is quite frustrating because Joseph Smith leaves us a huge body of work. Joseph Smith actually has a revelation and God says to him, there shall be a record kept among you. So you have to keep a record of everything. 
Matthias receives no revelation, much to the annoyance of us historians. Um, so a lot of the stuff we have to piece together is from the newspapers, from former followers. So we have to do a little bit of detective work. As far as we can tell, he is a die-in-the-wool apocalypticist. He believes that the end of the world is about to come any day now. He is waiting for the destruction of the world um, to, to come about. Beyond that, though, the most peculiar belief is how he believes the second coming will come through. He actually believes it will come through his seed, and he has to impregnate um, female members of his congregation, which he successfully does at one point. And um, at one point in the kingdom, there is quite a bit of enthusiasm because um, his this woman is with child, and they believe this is Jesus coming back, that this is the second coming. Things start to go to 11, though. He, um, uh, one of his members of his congregation is killed. So he, you can imagine this guy with his beliefs in this upstate. Yeah. He doesn't shave. He looks really raggedy. He walks around in robes with gold buttons. He has a magic stick, like a magic staff. Um, you, can, you can just imagine. This guy becomes a huge sensation in the New York press. Yeah. Um, he, this is part of the problem. And, is, and how many followers are we talking about at its peak? At its peak, I think he gets about 50, I think about 50. Don't quote me on that, but All I think right. it's about 50. So it's a relatively small community. Very small. But in your mind, why is it important for us to, to, to think about this, what we might call now a relatively obscure figure? To your mind, what does it tell you about American prophets? And particularly, you know, you think of a guy like that, his project fails, spectacularly, as you were saying. Yes. Whereas Joseph Smith's revelation and restoration obviously succeeds and continues to flourish to this day. What, what is it about Matthias and the prophet Matthias that, you, in your opinion, why does his kingdom fail? That's a great, that is the great question, and that is the question that draws people like me to Matthias. And that's the question I love to throw to students. Like, what do you think? What do you guys think? Mm. In my own mind... I think part of the story is that even though Smith is definitely a centralized figure with prophetic power, he, sh he envisions a much more totalizing community where some sort of power is shared amongst the community. There is a place for everyone. Hmm. Um, Joseph talks a, lo a lot about you know the great chain of being. This is part of the story of polygamy as well, where God's family will be all in all. Everyone will be connected in this great epic of salvation history through quite literally one married family at some point. Matthias doesn't have that. Matthias is a much more tyrannical figure. He's much more a centralized, my way or the highway kind of figure. Uh. He's very difficult to get along with. Um, without putting him on the Freudian couch, it does seem that he suffers from some kind of paranoia. He is always worried about being betrayed by one of his followers. Um, so he's quite difficult to get along with. Um, Smith is an evangelist. He has uh, missionaries go out to preach his gospel. To, he has a scripture that people can print and print ex um, right. accessibly. Matthias, it's all him. It is much more esoteric. Uh, it is much more difficult. So in a sense, if you want to use the kind of uh, economics of religion, if you will, the kind of Rodney Stark approach, why do some religions, Smith's is just a better deal. <laughs> it's yeah. a much better deal. Interesting. All right. A third prophet that you've studied, um, who, again, this is someone I think a lot of our folks will have heard of, at least heard of, maybe not know so much about, Nat Turner. Tell us about Nat Turner and his significance 
as not a, just an American prophet, but as an African-American prophet. Well, this is, like I said before, prophets typically are responding to problems. They're responding to crises, to issues in their community or dangers from an external community. Perhaps Smith is responding to economic problems in some respects, um, that their people are feeling dislocated. Maybe Matthias is um, responding to the lack of purpose he feels. Turner's response is very clear. It's, it's darkly clear. He's responding to the darkness that is American slavery. Um, so clearly that is the, the prophetic mission he sees himself, is to challenge slavery. Uh, he's born in uh, Southampton County in Virginia. Um, most scholars see him in a continuum these days, um, starting with Gabriel in 1800, uh, Denmark Vesey in 1822. Mm -hmm. um, also, that you could also include him with the Haitian Revolution. So, you know, he's not the first of his kind. He won't be the last. But he's particularly interesting, I think, because of his visions. At some point, he literally, he claims to see the heavens open and blood starts to fall from the sky. And he claims a vision in which that God is commanding him to lead a slave revolt, to break the chains that are enslaving his people and hmm. lead them to liberty. We know very little about his early life. It's quite difficult to find out much about him. And also the stuff around him has circulated could be, you know, propaganda by slate by um, white supremacist slaveholders trying to, you know, discourage right. other slaves. But we do know that he had a background as a preacher, so we know he is familiar with these biblical texts. So it it is quite clear that he is like many African Americans faced with American slavery, American hypocrisy over the institution of slavery. He is reading his experience from things like the Exodus story, uh, yeah. and he is connecting very much with that. So Turner's Bible, yes, the passages that inspire him, Exodus would be part it's a of big it. one, yeah. But he also he also turns to uh, Jeremiah, he also turns to Amos, he also turns to uh, Joshua, partly because there is a kind of woe story. There is a righteous indignation that mm. um, his white enslavers brought this upon themselves. That woe, woe, woe! They should have known the hour was coming. Um, how long did my people have to suffer? He, 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 you can see he is tapping into this tradition. Or, depending your faith tradition, maybe this is tapping into him. Yeah. So the prophet as um, bringer of God's righteous wrath against injustice. This is Nat Turner? I would say so. Or at least he's in that tradition. He is definitely in that tradition where he sees... Um, not only does he see that God's wrath is coming... The prophet, in this case, is an agent, a co-agent in bringing about that rough. Um, Turner leads a, um, a, a, slave, a, a slave revolt, um, which uh, unfortunately gets very gruesome very quickly. And, uh, and, and what year is that for our listeners, oh, roughly? Sorry, this is 1831. Uh, 1831, One. okay. Um, and this is part of, part of the problem is you can see he has four lieutenants who are very close to him. And they're pretty much ride or die with him. They are bought into his vision. They believe that he is truly some kind of prophetic figure. But like with most conspiracies, the more people you bring in, and I, I should say, I say conspiracy because they need to keep, obviously they need to keep this secret. Right. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to be disparaging. Um, 
but the more people you let into your your plans, the more risk you expose yourself, and also you have, you, the more exposure you have to people qualming. So later African American leaders, in in their struggle for equality and liberty and citizenship, eventually, um, what's their view? What, what what does Nat Turner live on as an inspiration to them, as a cautionary tale? Do they reject him? What's his place in that tradition? That's the most fascinating thing because from the from the white tradition, it, it, clearly he's the villain. Clearly, and in early scholarship, you can go and read. Um, essays from historians from the late 19th century, early 20th century, it, it will raise your eyebrows the way they write about this guy in such horrid detail that he like, is a mustache-twirling villain. The black tradition is a bit more different. It's more complicated. It's not too dissimilar to John Brown. And Frederick Douglass wrestles with the image of Turner, mm. much like he wrestles... I was thinking about Frederick Douglass. He doesn't meditate as much on Turner as he does Brown partly because he knows Brown uh, he knows Brown more uh, quite intimately at times actually uh, he, he knows Brown um, personally mm-hmm. uh, but having said that there is there are some black preachers who will use Turner as a cautionary tale that uh, the, the word is delusion similar to what we hear with uh, truth describing Matthias that this yeah. is religious excess this is religious enthusiasm this is religious delusion this has gone amok um, the response, uh, it's partly thanks to Nat Turner that a lot of the South is eager to desegregate their churches um, and to clamp down more on black laws about how enslaved populations should conduct, uh, should conduct themselves. Uh-huh. Having said that, though, we do see a heroic tradition emerging um, around, around Turner. Um, there are moments in the Civil War, Civil War, where you can see him being used as a, a liberator hmm. in the sort of uh, you know black black uh, Union men um, fulfilling the legacy of Turner. Um, but again, in in the classroom, much like John Brown, he is an un, you know he is an uncomfortable figure to wrestle with. I myself don't know what to make of him. And, yeah. Um, but. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you know right. it's easy to play. A, what do Americans say? Quote, Monday quarterback or <laughs> Monday morning quarterback. quarterback. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, it, when you when you put yourself in his shoes, it is you know it is difficult. It is very difficult. So Nat Turner continues, in some respects, to live on in in, in popular imagination. In fact, there's been a recent movie yeah, about tr- Nat Turner. Tell us about that. I believe it came out in 2016, All right. um, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, Nat Turner movie recently, uh, not too recently came out. Uh, it's an interesting film. From my perspective as a scholar of religion, it actually handles religion pretty well. Um, the, the vision scenes are quite surrealist, mm-hmm. but it actually just acknowledges that he is tapping into a prophetic religious tradition. Um, what's really interesting is the, the origin story it, it goes into is it has Nat Turner preaching to slaves to respect their masters. Right. And he has a, he has like a, the movie has a kind of fictional conversion experience. Um, yeah, it is. What's interesting about the film though, is that it also doesn't shy away from some of the darker elements as well. It's not. It's not rah rah Nat Turner. It, it, I see. It, it is. It is definitely the slaveholders are definitely the villains of this movie. Like, and it, this movie does not shy away from the the horror of slavery in all its uh, gruesomeness. Um, but having said that, though, it does it, it doesn't shy away from the uncomfortable elements 
of Turner's Rebellion as well. So in cinematic terms, as a historian, you're saying it captures really some of the complexity yes. of Nat Turner. I think it would be an interesting teaching tool. Um, one, you could compare it to the sources. Mm -hmm. You can use that to say, like, well, what do we know? And from what we've read, how much, how much is this accurate? But beyond that, from a discussion exercise, I'm, I'm sure it would spark really fierce discussion. Your area of particular expertise, obviously, with this really great discussion, is the 19th century and 19th century prophets. Uh, you talked about the role uh, of these folks. What if I said this? Night, the um, prophecy in America and American prophets, it's a 19th century phenomenon. It really dies out and we don't see it in the 20th century. Am I wrong? I would say you're dead wrong. I would say it, it mutates. I would use the word, if, if you're looking for carbon copies of 19th century style, yes. That particular style does disappear. But pro the interest in prophets themselves do not. Just look at, uh, just look at uh, Jim Jones, the Branch Davidians. Uh -huh. Even getting outside the Christian tradition, the, the rise of uh, neo-paganism, um, new, uh, new age movements that emerge. Um, maybe we could even say we're starting to see secular prophets as well with a kind of, you know, in my department, we've got to be careful using the C word, with cult-like followings. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I would say we definitely still have a flavor of American prophecy. Help us understand, take a step back and say American democracy and, and the American idea. Uh, is American democracy, in your opinion, um, is it surprising, given American democracy and our history and principles, that we see prophets rise occasionally and then perhaps fall or perhaps continue in some cases? Is it surprising or do you think it's actually part of our democracy? I would say... Oh, that's a great question, Jeff. Um, uh, that's really good. I, one could use the example of de Tocqueville here, where I think de Tocqueville would not be surprised. Part of it is the, the Christian heritage of America lends itself, I think, to a kind of Christocentric bibli biblical literacy that aids this kind of prophetic interest. So you have that on one hand. You have It's in the water, if you will. But how does it emerge? I think because of America's role in terms of how it sees itself playing a providential role, a salvific role, the idea of America as the redeemer nation, you're kind of setting yourself up for it in a, in a sense. Mm. When, you start, when you start putting yourself on that high of a divine pedestal, you know, one thing is bound to lead to another. And bringing in Madison here, when you have a marketplace, when you have such ease of religious liberty, such ease of religious experimentation. Yeah. You, know, you shake that cocktail up, I'm not surprised you're going to get there. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Well, so much to think about in, the <laughs> in this in really interesting study, not just of these particular prophets, but of what they show us, perhaps, about American democracy. Daniel Galata, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickenga.